Welcome to the Tea with Tamara podcast. I'm Tamara Arnold. And it wasn't that long ago that I was a broke single mom drinking way too much, completely detached from everything. Now I've written multiple books, downloaded I Could Read Chakras, and I'm a channel for the universe. I'm a real person with real stories, and I can't wait to share them with you. So grab a warm bevy and let's have some enlightened conversation to live our best life. Welcome to episode three of Tea with Tamara. I'm very excited to talk to you about my personal story here and my personal journey, um, you know, of what brought me up until the time that I had my awakening from podcast one and how in the last two years I've written two books that have gone into bookstores, created an online program that serves people all over the world, and I'm launching a podcast. Big, big couple years. And, you know, I get a lot of questions on how I did that. And so to give you how I did this, I need to go back in time. I almost wanted to throw some pit ball in there, pit bull, you know, song in here, but I might put it in the show notes just because now I want to hear it. Um, you know, looking back into um, my life history and my, and, and my childhood, it's incredible when we look back after we've done a lot of internal work because we can see it with a little bit of different clarity. So now I'm going to give you the story of how I see it based on the fact that I have spent years in in doing self-discovery work and self-development work to get to this space. So, you know, I didn't know when I was a kid that I was spiritually gifted. We don't think like that as kids. I mean, unless you have a parent that's spiritually gifted. So my, my kids know that they are because it's a conversation that we have. But when I was young, I, I didn't know. I didn't know at all. And so it was highly intuitive. And I was, I was, big empath, which until I figured that out caused me so much problems in my early adolescence and teenage years. And um, so I was the kid who didn't understand the kids in her own grade, right? They were so mean. And so I could feel how much people were upsetting each other as a young child. And I couldn't understand it. Why, Why would you say that? Why would you hurt somebody? It didn't make any sense. So I had a hard time making friends when I was little. And all I wanted to do was hang out with the adults. I wanted to hang out with my mom and my mom's friends because I I felt like I could connect more with them than I could kids my own age. And so this is where I adopted the nickname being an old soul, right? Oh, Tamara, you are such an old soul. But things got heavier. By the time I was 10, um, my home life, things were going on. And uh, my mom got really sad. Uh, Her depression showed for what I can remember. And again, this is only my personal view of my life. And looking back, it was around 10 that, you know, my mom's sadness took over. And I, I, as a 10-year-old, looking back, remember now saying, okay, I need to not worry about me right now, and I need to worry about my mom. 
And in that moment, I can almost feel now the that I kind of put my gifts on hold or I put them on the back shelf in order to be the best daughter that I possibly can and make my mom happy and, you know, put on little shows when she was going to bed at night. The one man show Tamara, the Tamara band, the Tamara comedian, the Tamara, all of the things. And uh, and so it was it didn't feel tough at the time but this was a place where i started to collect a lot of my initial beliefs that i had to work through because even when i was i was getting allowances or birthday money i would be going to the store next door to where our townhouse complex was and i would be buying my mom knickknacks in order to try and make her feel better so i became quite codependent as a young child which would later come into play like in my 30s and i would have to work through that as well and so when I when I hit high school, I still really hadn't connected to kids my own age. I felt very awkward. I made one friend in grade seven, um, but I really kept to myself as a young kid. I never fit in. And I remember later hearing that uh, this little friend I made in grade seven, who I'm still friends with today, her mom legitimately thought I was on drugs when I was in grade seven and eight because I was such a different child. Like, I probably didn't make sense to anyone. I read books all the time, and I thought everybody hated me. And I thought everybody hated me. And this really came to play in high school. Looking back, I can vividly remember this, is I would be walking down the halls, and I wouldn't want to make eye contact with anyone, because all I could feel was this anger and this, you know, resentment and all these things. And I'd be like, holy crap, everybody's talking about me, and they all just hate me so much, which it started to come into play when you get older and you would run into people from high school and they're like, I never thought that about you. Why would you ever think that? And then I realized what I was doing in high school as an empath was I was just picking up on their emotions. So they could have been mad at their parents or mad at their friends or mad at their boyfriends or any of these things. And I thought they were mad at me because I didn't know how to disassociate you know, what they were feeling as not being directed at me at the time. So you can only imagine with all those hormones, all the things I thought people thought about me. It was super overwhelming. And so by the time I was 17, I started to use drugs and alcohol as a means to numb my emotions. Because you can't feel, right? Like that's the whole point of of drugs and alcohol is they help you to not feel your environment. So that was one of the reasons why looking back, I know that's where when I started to do it. The other reason why was because I was having such a hard time fitting in with all the other groups of kids that, you know, I won't lie. The druggies are really inviting and, you know, they love you. They love everyone almost. And so, you know, it's like when we're in that pool, we're like, come swim in this pool. We're the most inviting people in the land, right? And so they were they were there with open arms to receive me. And I felt like I belonged somewhere for the first time in my life. And so at 17, I moved out. I was doing drugs and alcohol. I was numbing myself. And then I decided to go on a rotary exchange to Brazil and I got accepted even though I wasn't living at home. Now, what was really incredible about this story is that I had applied to do it when I was 16 and living at home with my mom and I didn't actually make it through 
for the very reason that my mom and I were too close and they felt that if I were to go away, that I wouldn't be able to handle being away from my mother. That's like, that's how codependent I was from that early age of 10 to at this point was 16. So when I, when I just kind of got really rebellious, didn't want to take care of anyone anymore, wanted to go out on my own, I moved out at 17, got, a, you know, accepted to the Rotary Exchange and off I went. And at this point was the first time I started working in a grocery store and had made my first group of friends and got my first boyfriend, by the way. So going away to Brazil at that time seemed like when I at least first applied, I didn't have these friends or these opportunities. So by the time I left, it was like, oh, great. Now I finally made some friends. I've got myself a boyfriend and now I'm being, you know, I'm going to go across the world. And when I when I left to go to Brazil, there was actually bets on how long I would be able to stay because, you know, I was that child who didn't go off and do anything on their own. I was always at home. I didn't leave my mom. I made sure everything was okay. And by that, even by that time, I was already being looked at as being the strong one in my family. And so that responsibility of keeping things together and, you know, making sure everybody was okay and all that was already something that I was picking up about myself. So I went to Brazil, even though nobody thought I could stay. I did. I did it for 10 months. And I thank my dad tremendously for funding that. And I do apologize for the fact that I didn't know much about money when I was 17. Oops, I love you. And so I, you know, had the best time and came home and it was it was just what I needed to break the pattern of the codependency in my life with my mom and with my family as a whole by being independent for those 10 months. Again, very irresponsible person doing a lot of drugs and alcohol when I was in Brazil. Not something I'm proud of, but I really want to give you the backstory here. The true Tamara. I'm not sugarcoating any of this. And when I came home, there is something nobody talks about. And that is when you go away, you think it's hard to leave. But what is actually harder is when you come home. So I was gone for 10 months. And when I stepped off the plane in almost a year of everybody's life, had passed. And if you can think back to where you were a year ago and how different you are right now, I walked off the plane and, you know, you know, my mom lived with my sister and a friend and a whole bunch of people. And like, I was just like, what the F just happened in Canada? (laughs) Like what happened to my, what was my reality when I left was no longer my reality when I got home. And I was like, oh, I, I don't know what to do with myself now. And so quickly, almost within a very short period of time, I met a man and I was feeling so disassociated from my family. And I met this man and he was the first man that I ever, you know, had sex with. And I was 19. I waited. I was a good little girl. And within a few months, I was pregnant with my first child. And everybody was had said to me, Tamara, you just wanted to be pregnant. And there was a part of me that did. I will not deny that fact because I was aching, just aching to feel a connection. And I know that my family loves me and I know that my friends loved me and I knew that there was all of this love, but I didn't feel connected to it because I had felt so separate and so different my whole life, not realizing that I was launching these 
these feelings or these emotions of being an empath into this world and taking in everybody's stuff. And so I didn't feel the connection because I felt all their other stuff, not just their love towards me. It was all of their other emotions. And so I had my son, got pregnant when I was 19 and had him at 20 and thought, this is it. My life is solved. Everything's going to be amazing because I've got this little human that I can just feel the love vibes with back and forth, back and forth. The problem was when you're 20 and you have a baby is that I was not mentally prepared to have a baby. And so, you know, my son and I, I broke up with his father while I was still pregnant. Uh, He was not a a good man for me. And um, I moved into my first apartment and I was working in a restaurant and I was still not understanding that I was an empath. And so the only way that I knew how to deal with the emotion at the time was I was still numbing myself. So I was still drinking. I was still doing drugs. And this and this went on um, for about three years in my early 20s. And while my son was young, that I just, I just didn't, I didn't, like I was working two jobs. I was working as a cocktail server in a bar. And then I was working at Home Depot in the paint department and then the blinds department, which is the most boring space in the land. Nobody used blinds and wallpaper. Paint was exciting, uh, blinds. And so what happened when I I started to work till three and then get up and go to work for six and all of this and try and be a mom and I was still numbing, you can kind of hear where my story is going. Eventually something had to shift because my whole body began to shut down. But what was really special about this time is that I, I started to realize that I wanted to be home with my son more. Like I wanted to be a present parent. I wanted to make better decisions. And so at the age of 23, I actually bought my first townhouse and I got a job working, you know, at a a restaurant in in the mornings uh, doing the uh, breakfast service and all of that. And it was a couple years after that that I met my second long-term relationship. And this was a very interesting time of my life, too, because he was an atheist We were together for on and off for eight years. And I did have my second child at 28, my daughter, uh, with him. But this was a time where I I started to question spirituality as a whole. Like I start like I always believed in, you know, Mother Earth and the sacred goddesses and the connection to feminine energy. I didn't have necessarily a strong bond with the masculine energy. My mom and dad had divorced when I was very young and lived in different cities. So it's really hard to build a relationship with um, your dad when he lives an hour away, right? And you're only seeing them every other weekend and it's of no fault of theirs. But at that time, we didn't do one week on, one week off, right? And so when I was going up to my dad's, like he had a full life. We would go to his baseball games, his hockey games, things like that, which was everything. He was just inviting me into his life. But I felt a, a diff, like a, a riff, like a, a when you're not, you just don't get that same amount of time. And so I stayed in that relationship for eight years on and off. And then by the time I was in my early 30s, I just couldn't do it anymore. We were we were arguing a lot. Um, my son at the age of eight had, right when my daughter was being born, it was when he began to, to really show um, the suicidal tendencies. He had shown uh, mental illness up until that point. There had been indicators. 
but you know, you want to love them. Oh, if you just love them enough, they won't show those indicators anymore, which doesn't work, by the way. I tried that. Smother them with love, which just turns into another codependent relationship. We'll get to that in a second. Um, and so, you know, by eight, he was threatening to kill himself with a knife. Um, by the time Ethan was in grade, I want to say uh, six, he was cutting him himself at school. He was then brought to a hospital and the hospital deemed that he was, um, you know, a threat to himself. And so the school would not let my son come back because they did not have any systems in place for him. Now, up until this, we had gone to different therapists. He had been diagnosed with ADHD. Um, he had, you know, many different variable diagnoses and things since he was eight, but nothing really was concrete. Nothing had been written in stone. And so um, in grade six, all of a sudden he was told, we, we, we don't know what to do with your child at school. So until we figured out processes for him, he can't come back. And at that time I was working at a personal trainer in a local gym. And I said, listen, I need to take, go down to part-time to take care of my son. And they said, unfortunately we don't have part-time. And so I had to quit my jobs um, in order to take care of my son. And I broke up with that man I was with on and off for eight years. Cause if you're going to do everything all at once, you should just do it, right? Like just go all in. And, and so I became a single mom. My daughter was on and off one week on one week off. I had my son all the time and I was about to enter probably the most toxic few years of my life. And so by the time Ethan's behaviors got worse um, after grade six, you know, when you're home and you're taking care of your son and you become like a helicopter parent, you're so worried that they're going to hurt themselves again, that you don't even give them a freedom to express themselves. Plus, my son was having suicidal tendencies. So you become like hyper paranoid parent and all of that attention and all of going to all of these therapy appointments and finding out how different he was caused him to go through a behavioral loop that was just not very healthy and not good. And we had just sold the house having broken up with my ex and we moved into a semi and um, Ethan was going into grade seven. And I actually asked him to move into a mental health residence because as a single mom with everything that was going on, his behaviors, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. And it threw everybody for a loop because when you have a child with mental illness, you don't tell people how bad things are, right? You really want to be the societal perfect parent and present yourself in a way that, oh, look at how nice my life is. And it wasn't, but I didn't tell anyone it wasn't. And so I had kind of threw everybody um, the blind, blind side there. And Ethan moved into a mental health residence in Niagara, and he stayed there for nine months. And they would drive him to grade seven and pick him up. Like it was, it was not the ideal situation. And this whole time, I'm trying to keep what is happening away from my daughter. I didn't want her to know any of this stuff in any way or any. She was little. I mean, she was born when he was eight, and now he's 13. So she was like five years old. And so we kept everything that was happening, or I kept everything that was happening kind of under wraps. When Ethan came back from the mental health residence, he he was he was really good at first, right? And we we're now really, really close. But at that time, 
he told me he was just pretending to be good because he didn't want to go back. Um, but we we didn't have any follow-up services um, from the region. And so it wasn't very long before the behavior started back up and things just started to get worse and worse and worse again. And during this time, guess what I am still doing? When Ethan's behaviors got worse, my drinking got worse because I didn't know how to feel feelings. I had stopped trying to feel my feelings in you know, when I was 17, when I was in high school, um, I couldn't really do anything about it when I was in grade seven and eight when my friend's mom thought I was on drugs and I wasn't. But I was just really self-medicating through books at that point. Like all I did was read. I was writing. I was doing poems, short stories, all of those kinds of things as my avenue. But as soon as I could get anything stronger to numb, I, I did. And so it was a couple years there that things just were getting worse and worse and the behaviors were getting worse and worse and the relationship was getting more and more toxic and my son's um, mental illness was not getting any better. His suicidal tendencies were getting worse. His uh, addictions were coming out. And it was in that cocktail of awesome that I met would be my now husband. <laughs> and I giggle here because. Ethan and I were putting a really good front on for each other because we didn't really want to be dealing with anything fully uh, when I met uh, Jeff, my husband. And uh, one day I'm going to bring him on tea with Tamara and uh, he'll tell you himself. I remember our third date and there was something about this man. I just knew I liked him. I just knew I liked him. And I didn't really like like men because, again, I had these like tendencies against masculine energy. And so we're on our, it might've been our fourth date. And um, <laughs> I'm like, listen, I need to talk to you. And he was like, what? And I was like, um, if you are uncomfortable in any way, shape or form with mental illness, we can't date anymore because I really like you. And I'm not really sure I want to continue this if, if you know, down the road, because this has been, that had been my, my, um, past relationships is like if I start dating somebody and go like mental health is really big in my family and they'd be like oh eek but Jeff said do you have any mental health issues and at the time I was like no and he was like well I'm not dating them I'm dating you you can sigh there because it was really really like romantic and so him and I started dating and we were all in like I don't know what it was about this man or what it was for me to him, because I was a bit of a hot mess at that time. Like I was not the author and, you know, a successful entrepreneur I am now. I was the one who was having parties every weekend, getting drunk on weekends with my friends. And, you know, on our third date, my son admitted that he was smoking pot to enhance his gaming um, experience. And I was so embarrassed. Like I, again, I was not the dateable one at that time. So I was just like, oh my God, this man really likes me and he wants to date me. And I kept thinking the rug was going to pull out from underneath me at any moment because it was too good to be true. And we we really hit it off. He had two kids. I met his kids. He met my kids. We just, it was it. You just know that feeling. And you know, people say it, but you don't always know what it is until you've experienced it. But it was just so easy. It was such an easy relationship. We didn't, we didn't have any problems. 
And uh, within a year, we had sold both our houses and bought a new house together. So talk about stress, friends. Talk about stress in your first year of your relationship. I'd only lived at my semi for three years, and he had owned a house, and we needed his house to sell to do the down payment on a new house. But mine sold first, and oh, drama, drama. But somehow, again... We, we ended up moving into uh, the bungalow that we currently live in and moving in all our kids after one year of dating, like a cocktail mix. Let's all be a big, happy family. Now, if you know mental illness at all, that did not go over well with my son. Change is bad enough on its own, but to go from a townhouse, which at the, t- at the time I didn't know he could sneak out so easily of, uh, to a bungalow with an whole doubled size family and he couldn't actually move in the house as a creaky old house without me knowing this is where things hit the fan like I'm talking we went from pretending things were okay just to make it seem like things were okay to oh my goodness now we're gonna go through everything in hyper speed and we're gonna go for like I found out so many things and the drug use and the behaviors heightened and at the when Ethan was 16 I walked into oh sorry I dropped a crystal because I'm playing with a crystal as I'm telling the story to calm myself um uh we I walked into my laundry room and my son was standing there with a chair and a cord and it was the scariest moment of my life because He had been talking about suicide since he was eight, and he had thrown it in my face a million times, and my husband and I weren't sleeping through the nights. One of us was always awake to make sure that he wasn't going to do anything, or he wasn't going to try and sneak out. Um, Our entire life was in disarray, and I mean, I was in a state of constant digestive issues. Like, there are no words to explain the discomfort that we were all in. And when I walked in and I saw my son, I mean, that just, that was, that was the moment. And um, I took him to the hospital. The hospital sent him to St. Joseph's um, Hospital in, in Hamilton, which if you're in the area, I thought was the be all end all. I thought if we can make it there, then we had done it. And he was going to get the care required to, to have the shift that he needed. But the problem is, is again, Um, the kids have to want to do things in order to get to the outcome. And Ethan had never wanted to do the things. And we were so highly codependent at this point. I was always answering the questions at the doctor's offices. Like Ethan really didn't do any, sat there and I was the one doing all the talking. And the doctor said, well, he'll be home in a couple days. We'll just fix this up and send him home. And I was like, you can't send him home. (laughs) We are not equipped. We aren't sleeping. We're still trying to keep all this stuff away from our other now three kids. Like it was like a juggling act and emotional act and physiological, physical, you name it. We, I was going down like a flaming ship. I was failing. I was failing as a parent, failing as a wife, failing, or at least I believe this is what was happening. I was just like, I had no idea. I always explain I was a personal trainer for almost nine years. And that, that saved me because it was such a positive uh, place to work, which You know, that empath thing comes up again. I could only work in a gym because there was the only place where people were happy. So I could come home and my life was in shambles at home, which I hid because you don't want people to know you're not the perfect parent or having the perfect life. Now my son's, you know, 
like legitimately had a chair and a cord and I broke. I didn't know what to do anymore. And I said to them, you, you know, no, he, he, needs to, he needs to be here. And so they said they would keep him for a week. And sidebar here is I'd been in therapy because how can you go through uh, this kind of life and not have some sort of support to, to talk to and to be? I love therapy. Don't like I'm pro therapy all the way. And, um, and so when he was 16 and he was in the hospital, I said the one thing that I had to say, and that was, Ethan, I need you to seek medical help. I need you to work on getting better because if you don't, then you can't come home because I'm not equipped. I, I don't have the skills required to do this. I am not a suicide counselor. I am not um, you know, capable of trying to fix your emotional state and your behaviors. I'm not capable. Now, I said that through way more tears and a lot of sadness. And my son looked me in the eye and said, well, then I'm not coming home. And at 16, he chose to live in a shelter downtown and on the streets of St. Catharines over seeking any medical attention in any way to try and better himself to come back to the house to live. Oh my God, that was the worst experience of my life. The next year was like me trying to fix everything that I felt like I had done wrong and his behavior, he was, you know, things got worse with him, like really bad with him while he was out on the streets, obviously and making really bad decisions, and I was still trying to fix things. And then when he was 17, something happened that was just too big to ignore, and it is his to tell and not mine. I tell him that all the time. And uh, I just, I that was the day that I, I said, we're done. We are done. Like, if anybody else treated me the way that you are treating me, I wouldn't have them in my life and I I love you and you're my son and I would do anything for you, but this has gone too far and we broke up. That's how I explain it is we broke up. And when that happened, that's where I spiraled into my own depression because I can vividly remember walking into my living room and going like, uh, what (laughs) the heck? Like, who am I? I'd been Ethan's mom for my entire life. I was 37, I believe, at the time. And so I'm 37 years old and I'm standing in a room and I have no idea who I am anymore. I don't even know if I want to be a personal trainer anymore. And that had been my entire life. And so I spiraled into a deep depression because who doesn't talk to their son? Who lets their son live on the street? Like all of these feelings had come up and I didn't know how to express them. And I was lost. Like, I was lost. And for the next year, I would do whatever I needed to do to learn to to reconnect to who I was. I joined a mastermind. Um, and it was just a year-long program. There was no, no connection to the coach in any way, shape, or form. But it offered me a Facebook group and a whole bunch of programs and meditations and things that I could participate in. And so I at least created... Um, I found a pool of people and it was funny because I found a pool of people that were highly spiritual people. And later I would hire one to actually do my mommy and daddy issues with. Um, 
but it, I started to to surround myself. I didn't participate in any of the communications in the groups or anything, but I just I needed to surround surround myself with vibrationally high people who were doing things that I wanted to do in my life. And so the, for that first year was really just about figuring out who I was. That's when I was asked the question, like, write out 50 things you love to do. This is a very interesting activity. I have all my clients do it. And I really suggest everyone does it. Because if you can't sit down and write 50 things that that you, you love to do for you, not that you're doing for other people, that 50 things that you love to do for yourself, you we're not connected to our, it took me days to write that list. But what it did do is it um, allowed me to go back and remember sitting at the couch because I was home all the time uh, with the journals and writing poetry and writing books and coloring and all of those kinds of things, which would then become what I was able to put out into the world. Now, this was really, if you listen to podcast two, where I was taking both of the situations that I had been through. So being around mental illness my entire life and writing short stories and poems and merge them together to create my stardust. Um, not create my stardust, activate my stardust. And so after that first year, I realized I wanted to make a big difference. And because we, at that point, I was like, I haven't been through what I've been through if it wasn't meant to help other people. And being a personal trainer for as long as I had, it's a form of coaching. And if there's any personal trainers listening, you know this, your clients, you work through not only their physical issues, but their resistances and their obstacles and all of those kinds of things. So I'd spent nine years of my life, you know, helping people work through whatever internal struggles or self-sabotaging that they were doing in order to get the physical result, but was also helping them in all areas of their life as well. And so the next following year, which became 2016, I started to really get this this urgency to, to make a difference in the world. And I ended up taking three different programs that year. So I did a business program, then I did a internal energetic program, and then I did a mindset program. And at the time I was like trying to solve the problem of creating an online business that would help people all over the world. And I, I, you know, you're looking at it and you're like, I'm doing all these things, but they're not working. But what was really happening was the universe was actually guiding me to exactly what I needed to do in order to be able to serve at the next level for my tribe and my community. Um, and on a side note here, when Ethan and I stopped talking, it was July of 2017, 17, no, it was 2016 and we, no, it was 2015. Wow. Looking back, really interesting to look at your life, 2015. And we were talking again by Christmas. We were talking again by Christmas. So by 2016, I took these three programs and even my son came to the mindset work one at the end of 2016 because he was ready. Sometimes breaking that, like I believe that any pattern or any behavior that we are just caught in the loop of when we are willing to cut it, break it, walk away from it, change it, shift it in any way, we can reset or repattern our behaviors to match the new vibration. We don't have to stay locked in the same cycles over and over again. And Ethan and I not talking for six months allowed us to do that. And now we have an exceptional relationship. Um, But at the end of 2016, I was like, man, I've just spent all this money on all these things. And I still don't have an online program that helps people all over the world. And um, that's when I was given the opportunity to join something that would 
event like now was like that the very thing that was my life changer and that was i was zero dollars in my bank and creditors calling and you know being in the worst financial history because after quitting my jobs to take care of ethan um i never did quite recover from that um I decided to write my book in a program with an incredible coach. It was the author incubator and it was Angela Laria. And that was at the beginning of 2017. And it was, it, it was the cost of like a, a car, really a small car. And, but I knew, but I knew with every ounce of my being that this was where I needed to be. And so having done the previous three programs at a lesser cost and then being faced with the decision to step into my stardust fully and the financial output or the energetic exchange for the result of writing the book was higher, which made the result that much higher for me. I decided to pull all stops and figure out a way to join this program. And I did. And so in 2017, which was last year, I wrote my first book, which was called My Kid is Driving Me Crazy, A Mom's Survival Guide for Living with a Child with Mental Illness. And it was the hardest thing I have ever done in my life. Because no one tells you that when you write a book, you have to feel the feels. And I had gone my entire life not feeling my feels by drinking, by, you know, smoking pot, by doing all of any other thing that I could think of doing to not feel my feels, over-exercising, whatever, overeating. I did that too. Now I'm writing this book and it was like, I've never, (laughs) like I have anxiety, that's my superpower, but like I have never experienced anxiety like I did for the first few months of 2017 to get this book out of me. Meanwhile, while I was writing this book, if you'd listened to podcast one, I downloaded like this voice through meditation and coming out of the darkness with my son. I just downloaded in the February of last year that I could read chakras. So now here I am going through this like un- earthing of my deepest, darkest feelings and emotions and writing my story of, you know, my experiences being a daughter and a mother to mental illness and what I did to come back into myself and how I could support other moms. I now have downloaded the read chakras. And what do you do with that information? And so I did the only thing I knew how, which was I went right to my computer and was like, oh, apparently I can read chakras, everybody who will let me practice on them. And there is something so spectacular, you guys. And I'm going to, if you get any angelic guidance, spirit guidance, guides, um, anything that is really has your best interest at heart. And they are saying like, listen, we know what your next thing is. If you will listen to us, I'm telling you, if you hear, take action on it because chances are it's going to become the thing that will shift your life into the next version of itself. So I downloaded I Can Read Chakras. I immediately started doing them. And um, that's where my second book started from is I'd done, I was doing 40 a week. I just couldn't get enough. Spirit was guiding me. I was learning how to channel people's energy back to them. It was so incredible. And in June of last year, I started writing The Magical Business Method, which goes through each floor of your energetic house. So all seven of your chakras, 
what resistance shows up when they're off, how you can solve that problem. I was working with people doing all of that. And um, at the same time, because I had done so much work in 2016 to clear my internal self and to learn the business and to do the mindset work, all of that came into fruition as being everything I needed to have done in order to step fully into serving the community that I was here to serve. So writing the book activated the stardust of me being a young child and always reading and writing. And then through my life history of being around mental illness, I was able to take the experience that I had been through and really launched my rocket of desire, as Abraham Hicks would say, into uh, writing a book that would serve people online all over the world. And that's what launched really my business forward. Um, When I first launched, it was the Enchanted Fairy. And now uh, my business is my name, Tamara Arnold. And so over the last year and a half, uh, from the time that, you know, shocker reading had come into play into launching this podcast, really the best thing that I've ever done is receiving the, the guidance from what I now know is my spiritual guide and taking action on that immediately. So whenever I receive a message, whatever it may be, um, I just, I listen, I listen and I don't take, you know, months. I always say, and maybe I'll do a podcast on this we have two ways to make a decision with a hard yes or a hard no. And everything in between is just discomfort, (laughs) right? And so I, to get where people are saying to me, Tamara, what did you do? How did you build this incredible business? Is I had done the work. I didn't realize how much I was trusting the universe. I activated my spiritual gift by writing my first book. I took immediate action on it. So from the time I was 10 when I placed it on the shelf until I really stepped fully into it in 2016 by meditating and receiving the voices and then started to actively build my business with it. That's how I got to this place. That's how I um, now live every single day in my essence, in my light, shining my stardust, helping other people uh, do the same, right? I always say my stardust is to help you find your stardust. So by helping other six figure coaches with spiritual gifts, step into their stardust and make money. It's like, I have been through all of this for this purpose, for this life, for this expression. And if that totally is like, wow, Tamara, I feel like my life has just completely mirrored yours. I will place a link if if this sounds like a vibrational match and you're like, I want to play with this woman. I want to swim in her amazing community of high vibing spiritual entrepreneurs. Totally cool. But what I would really love is if this resonated with you or you know somebody who maybe is going through troublesome times in their life with a child with mental illness, or maybe they are the daughter or the son of mental illness and this podcast could really make a difference in their lives, please, please, please share it. Hashtag me and that's hashtag Tamara Arnold. Um, if, if you're sharing it, wherever you're sharing it, if you're in a coffee shop, I really want to be a part of people's lives. That's why I do what I do. And if you could like the podcast and leave a review, that would be amazing, especially at the beginning stages that we are going through here. And I'm just so honored. And thank you for listening to my personal story. Um, I will say just to end off today, too, that I have been sober since uh, April, no, March, March of 2018. 
Uh, so all of that numbing no longer exists so that I can be in the highest vibration with the, my spiritual gift that I possibly can and make a lot of shifts and changes. And guys, that should be a podcast too, because that was not easy to get from numbing myself since I was 17 to completely not wanting to depend on alcohol as a means to cope and deal and numb. Um, that was a, That's a separate podcast. That's a whole other journey that we can talk about. But Again, thank you so much for being here on episode three, and I can't wait to start having conversations with some really magical people and share their uh, stories with you as well. So have a great day.